The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Last week we started and we looked at uh, the perseverance of the saints. And uh, I want to recap a little bit of that because some of us weren't here last week. Just to kind of go over it again. Then I want to take one of the biggest arguments from Scripture against the perseverance of the saints or against eternal security. And I want to look at that text, see how that argument is raised. And then I want to show how from that text the argument doesn't stand and why we absolutely hold on to the fact that we have eternal security, that God will keep us to the very end. So just to recap, we saw last week from Romans chapter 8 that God foreknows us. He has an intimate knowledge of us, every single detail about us. It's, It's kind of on the same level as a, pardon me, but a sexual knowledge in marriage. It's that level of intimacy But it's beyond that. It's even beyond what that is. And God knew us before the creation of the world. He looked down through history and saw us and knew us. God also predestined us, which means he decided beforehand where we where our destiny would be, where we would spend eternity. The Bible also says that those whom he predestined, he also called, which means that God extended to us through the gospel message an effectual, powerful call that called us from death to life. And so that call imparted to each of us the power to respond. So it's an effective call. He also justified us. God declared over us that we are righteous in his sight. He took our sins and placed them on Christ, and he took Christ's righteousness, and he clothed or covered us in that righteousness And then on the basis of that imputed, applied righteousness, he declared us just in his sight. And the Bible says in Romans 8, verse 30, that God glorified us. Now, that's a wonderful statement. It's stated in a past tense, and it's something yet to happen. And so Paul was so confident and so sure of what God was going to do that he said, I'm going to state it as a past tense completed action because that's how confident that God is going to glorify us. So all of our salvation is entirely of God's doing. Well, how do we respond to that? And we saw from John chapter 10, the way the sheep respond to the shepherd, we hear the shepherd's voice calling. He makes it clear in John 10 that we enter the shepherd's fold by the shepherd. Meaning what? Meaning that we enter by faith in the shepherd and we enter in repentance of sin. We also know by experience the shepherd's voice. So having been made alive, having experienced that effectual call, having come to know the shepherd by faith, when the shepherd speaks to us, through the scriptures, as the Spirit of God applies those scriptures to our hearts, we recognize the shepherd's voice and we respond in obedience to that voice. We know the shepherd's voice. Um, We also follow the shepherd's leading. 
I lead my sheep out and they follow me. They know my voice. I know my shepherd. There's an intimate knowledge there, an intimate relationship between sheep and shepherd. We follow the shepherd's leading and we listen to the shepherd's voice. And so he says both we hear his voice and we listen to it. And one has the idea of hearing to respond and one has the idea of listening as in a deep listening. We take in what the shepherd has to say to us. And we concluded, by the way, I just want to make a quick time out. In case you're wondering or in case you're thinking that I'm really smart, let me put your minds fully at ease. I'm not. I go through and I research this stuff, looking through the statement of faith. I also use uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. So if you want to go out there and fill in all the blanks that I'm leaving, because I can't cover everything he says about this in one night, go pick up Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. It is brilliant in its very clear, simple, structured layout. It's solid reform faith. And uh, this, this is where I'm getting this from, okay? I didn't come up with it by myself. I'm not that smart. But I can take what he's done and I can present it to us all. And I'm learning right alongside of all of you. So this is stuff that I'm enjoying and unpacking and, and getting some uh, confidence in as well. Our dependence, our sorry, our perseverance depends on God's unchanging love. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died to us, died for us, sorry. So our perseverance depends on his unchanging love. In order to lose our eternal security, in order to, to be lost again, God has to unlove us. And nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that. God's irrevocable gifts and calling are what our perseverance depends on. He says in Romans 11:29, for the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And so when he called through time, if you like, and said, Wes, come to me, that call will never be rescinded and put back. He will never send Wes away saying, I've changed my mind. It's without repentance, without undoing. Uh, God's omnipotent power to keep us is what our perseverance depends on. It tells us in the book of 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 that we are being kept by the power of God for an inheritance yet to be revealed. So he is keeping us. Jude, chapter, Jude verse 25 says exactly the same thing. We are being kept or guarded or preserved, if you like those some words all fit, by the power of God for an inheritance yet to be revealed. So we're going to finish this race. We're going to go all the way to the end because God's power is making it possible. And lastly, actually I shouldn't say lastly, there's more, but for tonight, lastly, God's abiding, sealing, filling presence of His Holy Spirit is a guarantee, it's a deposit that we have against what is yet to come. So all of what we have in life in the Spirit of God, like we're looking at this morning, this is just a down payment. This isn't even 10%. I don't think it's even 1% of what we will enjoy in eternity, in glory. The Spirit given to us is a deposit that guarantees we will receive the full blessing in the day yet to come. Now then, there are, of course, people who would not agree with most of what I just said. Uh, if you don't know anything about salvation history, in that course of history, this, the church has been divided into two main camps in how you understand our salvation. 
I don't like using men's names, and they would probably roll over in their grades if they heard me using their names, but I got to use them because that's the simplest way to understand it. There is the Calvin group called Calvinists, and then there is the Arminian group. You say, where does Arminian come from? It doesn't. I thought it was Armenia, like the place over in Europe. That's not what it is. And then I discovered one day that a man named Jacob van Harmen, who was a Dutch theologian, developed what's called the theories or the principles of Arminianism. Because he did such a great work at this, the church, in order to honor and recognize him, they Latinized his name. So van Harmen, they dropped the van part and changed Harmen to Arminius. Hence, Arminians, okay? So Arminians are those who do not believe in God's sovereignty. They reject God's choosing and God's electing of those who believe. They would reject God's electing predestination and foreknowledge. The way they see it is that God looked down through history like an impassive, impartial observer and simply could see what we would do. And so those who are saved are saved because they choose God. They come to God of their own volition and their own calling. And sadly, that view makes a denial of a lot of Scripture, and it leaves a big mess. As a result, because of that belief, they also argue very strongly that we can lose our salvation. Now, when I say they, I don't mean all of them. Some of them argue that, some don't. But there are some amongst the mini Arminian camp that would say we can lose our salvation. Okay, now you say, how is that possible? We just look at all those things that God did and all the things that we're responding to and all of what our perseverance, our salvation depends on. How could you possibly have the idea that we could lose that salvation? Glad you asked. Take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Hebrews and we're going to look at one of the thorniest passages I think I've come across in trying to understand this and how it fits in with the rest of the Bible. And most folks who would argue for you can lose your salvation will go to this text to try and prove it. I think I told you last week there was a fellow that came to our church in Casey, walked in and wanted to become a part of the church. I got to meet with him and started talking to him, and he made it absolutely clear that he believed you could lose your salvation. And he even went as far as to tell me that he'd actually split two churches over this already. So I very politely told him that we didn't really need his fellowship all that badly and that he would be better to keep looking for another church because I wasn't going to let someone come in and divide the church over. And he was fully prepared to do it. That was his admission. I was shocked, but that's what happened. Anyways, Hebrews 6. Let's read from verse 1 down to verse 9. And then we're going to focus on verses 4 to 6 for now and then 9 at the end. But verse 1 of chapter 6, the book of Hebrews, the writer who is unknown says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the 
word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produced a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We'll leave it there. Okay, I want to go back. I'm going to read verses 4, 5, and 6 again and listen closely and see if you can see their argument. You shouldn't have to struggle too much. He says in verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, the Arminian camp will take that and say, there you see, look at what these people have experienced, and surely having experienced all those things, they are saved. Well, let's look at their argument and unpack it so you can see exactly where they're coming from. They say, those who have been enlightened, he says that in verse 4. What does he mean? Well, what they mean, the Arminians take that and they say, well, that means they have a full knowledge and a full understanding of the truth of God. They've been enlightened. They've been saved. They would say, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, surely that means that they have experienced the Holy Spirit. They have or, sorry, tasted the heavenly gift if they've experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives, well, then surely they are saved. It seems to make sense. Seems to make sense. I'll explain in a sec. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, well, there you go. It says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Surely that must mean that they have fellowship like you and I do in the Holy Spirit. They must be saved. Then he goes on a bit further. Those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, experienced the leading and instruction and understanding. They've enjoyed those moments, opening their Bibles and looking through, and they've discovered some great things from Scripture. Well, surely that must mean that they're saved. It says that those who have tasted of the powers of the ages to come. Now, that's a pretty cryptic statement. How do you taste of the powers of the ages to come. Well, when you understand that the Hebrew writer, Hebrews, Hebrews writer, he's talking about the experience that we have now as a foretaste of what is yet to come. So those in this case, most likely they have experienced something of the rule and reign of Christ in its future fullness. They've experienced, experienced something of it now. And then he goes on to say, and then have fallen away. And the Greek word to, for that word fallen, it literally means they have abandoned, they have utterly forsaken, they have neglected completely 
God, fallen away. Sorry, yeah, they've neglected and turned away completely from God. So the Aminians would argue, surely this person once was saved, now he's fallen away, so he was saved and he lost his salvation. Okay, I see all these people going, oh, now you see where their argument comes from. So what do we do? We just read all those other verses. There's so many other verses about this. And I'll give you a little personal experience. I was sitting in a class at school uh, doing a class on Hebrews. And the instructor in my class happened to be of the Arminian persuasion. And I happened to be rather staunchly reformed. And you can guess what happened. We had an argument in class. It was funny. The whole class is doing this. Like watching tennis, you know, and I just wouldn't let go on this. And he could not get across the idea that, no, 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 once saved, always saved. He said, well, clearly this text. And I would say, yeah, but Paul says, and he would say, no, you can't argue from Paul's writings. And I was like, now, nah, just a moment. The Bible is one book. It interprets itself. Like it, you can use one passage to understand another. One of the most basic. This is something you can keep in the back of your mind as you're reading your Bible. When you come across the text that is not as clear in discussing one topic as another text, use the text that is more clear to help you understand the one that's a little less clear. So when you go to Romans 8 and you see there how God foreknew, predestined, he justified, he glorified. We go to texts like John chapter 10. My father has them in his hands and nothing will snatch them out. You hang on to those texts. Now you come back to this one. You go, now, wait a minute. Does their argument stand? I'm going to show you that, in fact, it doesn't. Okay, so the Arminians will argue that a man can be truly saved and then they can be lost again. Some of them will argue that. The question that came to my mind as I was just reading through and reading through and reading through this yesterday, what two fundamental gospel truths about every single genuine believer are not mentioned in this experience of this person? What two? Can you think of two of them? I'll give you a hint. One starts with R and one starts with F. Yes, and faith. There you go. Exactly. That's what stuck out in my head. And I wish like crazy it had stuck out of my head in the middle of that argument because I could have won the argument, but I, I didn't, so I didn't. There you go. But what's this? Oh, I, yeah, I passed the course. <laughs> so it was all fine. But those two questions came to mind. What's missing? There's nothing mentioned in that description of this so-called believer about either faith or repentance. But it goes more now. Let's look at the text itself. Those words... Starts off with those who have been enlightened. It means literally what they say it does. It means come to a knowledge or understanding of truth. If you want to remember an easy way to remember what faith means or how to understand faith, think of it as K-A-T, cat, right? Knowledge, agreement, and trust. So I have to know the truth. I have to understand the truth like this man here. He has been enlightened. He has some idea, some understanding of truth, but he has failed to mix that truth with faith. So even though he's been enlightened, it's not talking about someone who is truly saved. 
knowledge alone saves nobody. I've said it over and over again. It isn't knowing the facts of salvation that saves you. It's trusting in God that saves you. Right? Um, he says, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, here's something else. Greek words, like a lot of English words, have a whole range of meaning. If I, if I say that Wes is one cool character, I could mean one of two things. I could mean that he's always cold and he's always putting on a jacket and a sweater and a toque to keep his head warm. I could say he's a cool character. His temperature is cold. Or I could mean he always walks around a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses and designer jeans and a designer jacket and he is one cool dude, right? <laughs> we, would, we understand the range of meaning in cool. And obviously the first instance is the case here, not the other one, right? But words have ranges of meaning. So when the writer says those who have tasted the heavenly gift, he uses a word, that's the word for eat. Who am I? And what he doesn't mean is those who have gobbled down the heavenly gift. What he means is those who have tasted. You remember when Jesus is at the cross and the Roman soldiers give him wine mixed with uh, gall, I think it is. It's the drug. And he, yeah, that's right. Vin, no, no, before that, before he goes on the cross, they give him a, like, a, like a, a drug to try and dull the pain. And the Bible says when he had tasted it, he refused it. So the idea there in this word, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, is the idea of somebody who has experienced a tiny little bit of it, but has in large rejected it. So you say, wait a minute, how can it be, how can it be possible for somebody to experience something of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and still not be saved? Now, that doesn't sound possible, does it? Well, it is actually possible. Take your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 and verse 22. And you remember, if you know your Bible, you remember the scene. Jesus is making the conclusion to his Sermon on the Mount, and he makes this incredibly chilling warning. Matthew 7 and verse 22. But what we'll do is we'll read verse 21 to 23. Matthew 7, verse 21, the Bible says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice what they did. They cast out demons. They prophesied. They preached in Christ's name. And they did many mighty works in Christ's name. So, but yet, they didn't know Christ. They were not truly saved. And so the answer to the question, is it possible for someone who is not a believer to experience something of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, the answer is, yes, it is possible. In fact, those men, many, as Jesus said, actually prove it. Okay, but again, it's the same faith issue. 
There is experience. Before we come to faith in Christ, God the Holy Spirit is already working in our lives to bring us to that point. So this person, having been enlightened, having tasted of the heavenly gift, and we'll look at sharing and participation of the Holy Spirit in a second, he has experienced something of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, but there has not been that response, that mixing of knowledge with faith that resulted in salvation. Those who have, the next phrase there, those who have shared or partaken in the Holy Spirit. Again, it's a range of meaning. Now I can say I have a sharing in Heather, my wife. I know her extremely well. We have a close, intimate relationship. And I have a relationship with Russ Cormack. You say, who's Russ Cormack? Well, hopefully he'll be one of the builder that will do this extension here. I've talked to him on the phone twice. I've sent four emails. We have a friend of a friend connection. So I have a very distant relationship with him. But the word that's used for this, the word makakos, has that same idea of a loose association. So when the writer says they have tasted of the heavenly gift, the idea of a little tiny taste they have a loose, very loose association type relationship with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean koinonia. Koinonia, fellowship. That's something on a far greater, far higher level, right? So we who know the Lord Jesus Christ and have been filled with the Holy Spirit have a fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit. That is an incredibly intimate bond. These have a very distant association with the Holy Spirit. They've experienced something of the work of the Spirit in their lives. He also talks about those who have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. Again, it's a tasting. It's just a touch. Yeah, very much so. Okay, there we go. <laughs> that would be page five in my notes. That's okay. <laughs> no, you're right. It's all good. Uh, they tasted, they shared, they've experienced something of the goodness of the Word of God. They've seen its beauty. But the one phrase they get very much correct is the phrase for these have then fallen away. And fallen is a very poor word. It should be these have neglected or these have abandoned. So what they have done is they have come all this way. They've understood the truth. They've tasted of the Spirit of God's work. They've seen the Spirit of God working in their lives. They've been in the Bible. They've been experiencing something of the beauty of the Word of God. And they haven't mixed it with faith and repentance. And so now instead of diving in, responding to, with faith and repentance to God's work, they instead abandon. They go the other way and they utterly reject all of what God has done. So the reality is they fell away, like you said, First John. They went out from us because they were never part of us. They were never saved. So the Arminian argument that you can lose your salvation argued from that text doesn't stand. But there's more. Okay, I want you to see the rest of this too. Notice verses 7 and 8. Okay, uh, The writer then uses an analogy... From, uh, from nature, from the crop, from the, the farming world. 
He says, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Notice the idea there of land. Remember Jesus in the parable of the soils, right? A farmer goes out to sow seed. He takes the seed, he throws it on out there. And we all know, being knowing something about farmers, the first thing a farmer does, he doesn't throw the seed out. He goes and he prepares the soil, right? Digs it up, plows it over, puts in fertilizer and all the rest of it. But the hard ground, he leaves. The stony ground on the edge, he leaves. And so when the, so, the seed gets sown across those soils, the prepared ground receives the seed and it, as, the, as this analogy here, the blessing of rain falls, it produces a crop. The other three seeds, the hard ground, the thorny ground, and the stony ground, I believe it is, none of them produce a crop. Okay, So he's now describing a true believer as one who brings forth fruit. There's a response to all that God has done because there is real life there. And then in verse 8, he, he describes with weeds and so on the opposite. But notice verse 9, because there's been a lot of arguments. They'll, they'll chip away at what I just said and say, well, you, you're overstating it and you've taken too far. But look what the writer says. He actually clears up really well in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What's he saying? The things that are the, the other things in verse 4, 5, and 6. Sorry, verse 4 and 5. You've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God. Those are the things he knows. But he says we're convinced of better things than those. In other words, these things here are not, in the writer's view, conclusive of salvation. But he's convinced that the readers, the Hebrew Christians who are reading this, they have already experienced better things than this. They have experienced the reality of salvation. So you say, so why did the guy even bring it up? <laughs> why, like, why write all that, right? It's such a controversial topic. In actual fact, it imposes a massively severe warning. And that's what the book of Hebrews is very much about. He's warning the Hebrew Christians, beware lest you fall away. Beware, as he says in verse uh, 12 of chapter 3. So flip over a page or two and you'll find chapter 3 and verse 12. And this is one of the warning passages you make, and it fits so perfectly with Hebrews 6. He says, beware or take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Same word again. You get it? So the very point of faith that's missing in Hebrews 6, he's saying here back in Hebrews 3, watch out lest there be an unbelieving heart in you. All right? So the whole point of all this is, is the warning that's given here is it is possible. It's possible to understand the truth. It's possible to possible to taste of the heavenly gift, it's possible to share in some experience of the Holy Spirit's work in us. It's even possible to get into the Word of God and discover the beauty and the wonder of the Word of God and yet not be saved. That's a warning. 
That's a very, very strong warning. Massive, if you think about it. So what do we do with all this? Well, we go back to what we started with. For those whom God truly has saved, He's made alive. We've responded in faith and repentance, and we are walking with the Lord. We can rest absolutely secure and sure that God has truly saved us. He will see us all the way to the end. Isn't that great hope? But the warning goes alongside of it because the warning tells us to watch out lest there's an unbelieving heart there. A faithless heart. So without faith, all of those other things which look so great. I mean, you imagine those guys showing up in front of the Lord, right? Pastors, preachers, missionaries, evangelists. I mean, look at the things they're doing. If a guy walked into our churches and said, I've cast out demons and I can do it now, boom. I can preach the word of God, boom, gets up and preaches. You know what well, the other thing was? The... Um, Mighty wonders and works. I can do all kinds of mighty wonders and works. We go, oh, that's a man of God. But the writer says, watch out. If there's no faith, there's no repentance of sin, he's deceived himself and he will drag others with him. And you don't have to look very far into this world of Christianity to see exactly that thing happening. right? So what do we do? What, what, what do we do with us? Where do we take it? Well, number one, we note well that warning in Hebrews 3.12. Beware, watch out that there's an evil, unbelieving heart in you leading you to fall away. 2 Corinthians 13.5, I think I mentioned this morning, examine yourselves to be sure that you are in the faith. Examine your own heart before the Lord. If you have any doubt whatsoever, get down on your knees, open the word of God and cry out to God to show you where you really stand before him. If you do that, I can pretty much assure you that you're saved. You say, why would you say that? Because an unbeliever is not going to care enough to really examine themselves, right? So as soon as you go, oh, I'm worried about that. Go down. I've got to make sure. I open a word of God. Begin to cry out to God to show me. I can pretty much tell you that you wouldn't do that if the Spirit of God wasn't working you to make you do that. Second Peter one verse five. Let's, let's go back to that passage again. We read it last week. It's worth reading again. Second Peter chapter one. We'll read verses five to twelve. Two great statements here. Actually, we'll read from verse 3 to 12 because there's great truth above it that's worth it. No, we'll read from verse 1. Why not? We're here anyway. we got five minutes. He says, 2 Peter 1 and verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant or slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become take, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement or add to your faith virtue and virtue with knowledge, 
and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. Notice what he's saying here. You have, in verse 1, obtained a faith of equal standing. In, for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort. Strive to add to your faith virtue and all those different qualities there. And then in verse 10 he says, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What are those qualities? Faith. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, they're all fruit of the Spirit. Those things you're not going to have without the work of the Spirit of God in you. You already have the faith. So what we take away from all this is beware of the unbelieving heart. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Add to your faith virtue and all those other qualities there. Be diligent to confirm your election. And one last thing in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. This is what he says. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. We'll leave it there. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Does he mean it's doubtful? In actual fact, it's no. Uh, In Greek, they have something called a second class condition. So it's more like saying, since you're going to continue. So the if is actually based on a very solid conclusion already. Uh, It's almost like a past tense thing. But what he's saying is, listen, those who have been reconciled, those who have been um, once alienated, now reconciled, he's working to present us holy and blameless and above reproach for him, before him. So continue in the faith. Carry on. Keep going. Notice one other thing. I just can't mind. If you go back to 1 Peter 1, you don't have to. You can just listen if you want. First uh, Peter 1 and verse 5, he says that we are by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. So it's watch out for an unbelieving heart, faithless heart. Uh, continue in the faith. You're being guarded through faith. So in all those things, faith is the key that ties it together. Just like that guy in Hebrews 6, 
There's no faith mentioned, no repentance mentioned in his life. He hasn't tied knowledge and all those other things together with faith to experience the reality of salvation. It's faith that is the key to it all. All right, I've talked enough. Questions or comments or, or just thinking out loud? Absolutely. Yep. What were they? They sort of go a little bit, almost the same time. So the Spirit of God works in you to make you alive. So that the work of the Spirit of God is already happening in you. The response of faith and repentance, which got to go together and come very close behind that, work together so that the response of our hearts to the work of the Spirit, the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see. The Spirit of God makes us alive. So we realize those spiritual realities and he gives us the faith by which he then calls us to respond and obey. Right. So, yeah, you put them all together and you have that experience of salvation. A small child having a little knowledge, a basic understanding of sin and punishment and God and salvation can respond in faith and repentance to God's work in their lives. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. But one who has, who has truly believed, and, and this is what uh, the statement of faith goes a little bit into this too. There are times in all of our lives when we'll slip back a little bit. We'll go through doubt and depression and darkness. We'll go through moments of despair when we really don't, we're not entirely sure. If the work of God has been done in our lives, as we're talking about here, then he will bring us through it. He will take us and bring us back to that place. It won't be a long delay. If someone has that for a week or two or six months, that's one thing. Someone comes in and says, you know, I walked away from the Lord for 25 years, and then I returned to the Lord. Um, my answer to that person is, uh, you probably weren't saved 25 years ago. More than likely, you got saved just now. The, the seed sown in your life all those years ago, God, as the patient farmer, the God, the patient uh, bringer of life from his word, has taken 25 years to bring life from that. Which, by the way, gives us some encouragement too. Don't despair over somebody that you have shared the gospel with and prayed with and, and pleaded with to trust the Lord. God will honor that in time. You say he'll get saved for sure? No, I can't say that. But I do know one thing, that when you stand before the Lord and he stands before the Lord, they stand before the Lord, he will say, you've got no excuse because somebody told you I sent them and you heard it and you knew what it meant. He may also, so he may use it to add to their judgment at that moment, but he may also use it to bring them to faith in Christ many years later. I've heard stories of prisoners on on death row, in jail cells, remembering a mother's prayer, remembering a Sunday school teacher's lesson and trusting Christ in the later days of their life. It's not impossible, right? So yeah, be faithful and carry on. Keep sharing the gospel. Whether you see the response or not, God will use those faithful words in his own time and way, yeah. Any other comments or questions or rebuke? Uh, 
Yeah. very much so the, and the beautiful thing about John 6:37 is it, it's in the same chapter with John 6:44 and 45 so that those that come to the father he will no wise cast out why because the father has brought them right no man comes to the son unless the, it's given to him of the father no man uh, 6:44 just to read him says how can you oh, that's not what I'm looking for uh, hang on I'll find it thought I had it. Well, no, not that one. Oh, that's what it was. Uh, 65 is, uh, this is what I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my father. And then 45, uh, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So the one that comes to the father, like you're saying, like Bunyan's saying, the father will never cast him out because he's the one who's brought him to start with. Yeah. And it's, I think it's amazing and it's, it's gracious of God in a huge way that even though he is the one bringing us and wooing us into the son and to the father, at the same time, we have that sense that we're coming to the father and we're coming and we're crying out for salvation. It's, it's the gentleness and the grace of God that works both to give us the power to come and then receive us and welcome us with loving arms when we do come. Yeah. And at the end of it all, you just have to conclude, I would not be saved if it weren't for God's work in us, in me, right? There's nothing I can do to say, this is all my doing. I have not of yourselves, lest any man should boast, as Paul said in Ephesians 2. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So he's pleading with these Hebrew Christians and he's begging them, don't be like your great, 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 great grandfather in the desert who hardened their hearts and would not hear God speak to them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure the one you're referring to. Today, 
Yeah, that, that psalm was written about the, the people of Israel in the wilderness. Yeah, and, and they hardened their hearts against God's word. So probably written by David, but yeah, that's... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. Every church um, will probably have some Arminian of that persuasion in it, even this one for sure. Um, a, whole, a wholesale Arminian, but probably the Methodist, I think, if I understand them correctly. Yeah. 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 Um, the folks I come from, God bless them, great gospel preachers. They love the Lord, but they would take anything to do with Calvinism, quote-unquote, or election and all that, they get very upset and they don't want to hear anything about it. They, to them, that's you're, in, you're imposing on the freedom of man to believe or not believe. And my answer is Romans 3 says that no one seeks after God, no, not one. He makes it so emphatic there. Nobody can go, well, yeah, that was me. No, no, not one, not even you. You didn't seek for God. God sought for you. Yeah. Anyways, having said all that, why don't we close in prayer and uh, give thanks to God for a really good day. Loving Heavenly Father, again we come before you and we thank you and we bless you your name for you are a great God. And Father, we thank you for these rich and glorious truths, but Father, we also thank you for the warnings that you place within Scripture. And Father, it ought to cause us to just pause and chill when we read those words of Jesus. Many will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not preach with prophetic power? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works? And Father, those who have been enlightened come to some understanding of the truth. Those who have tasted and shared a little bit in the work of the Spirit of God, even been used of the Spirit of God at some point, and yet, O oh God, they have never trusted in Christ. They have never truly repented of sin. And the terrible words that will be uttered in absolute justice and righteousness, depart from me, I never knew you. Father, may we heed those warnings. Father, may we be so careful to take care lest there be in us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away. Father, may we be so careful to continue steadfast in the faith. Father, depending every day on your enabling strength and power to continue. Father, may we be so careful, be diligent, as Peter says, to add to our faith virtue and all those other things. Father, that we might walk in a way to please you. Father, again, I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, where he said, my one ambition, whether home or away, is to be pleasing to the Lord. Father, we pray that you would work in the hearts of every one of us in this whole church, O oh God, 
that we would live lives that are pleasing to you every step of the way, that we would live lives, Father, that honor you and display that you are holy. Father, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name. Father, we pray that the name of our God would be holy in everything we do, our words, our responses, our reactions. Father, our our prayers, our reading, our preaching, our going to work. Father, the way we drive, the way we respond to loved ones and strangers, may it all declare, those actions declare that we have and serve and love a God who is holy. Father, may we as a people walk in the fear of the Lord with an awe and an amazement and a reverence for God, for you. Father, at the same time, we just rejoice. We give thanks, O God, for that great promise that those who come to you, you will in no wise, in no way cast them out. Father, we thank you for the freedom and the boldness that we have a reverent boldness to come into your presence in prayer, to lift up the names of loved ones and friends and cry out to you for their salvation, cry out to you for their physical and emotional and spiritual healing. Father, we thank you for the boldness that we have to come and sit as the psalmist said, one thing I desire, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all my days. Father, we would be that people. Father, we ask you for your help. We give you thanks, O oh God, for a wonderful day. Lord, we thank you for the visitors we have this morning, Vanny and her son and daughter <clears throat> and daughter-in-law. Father, for the young fellow and his wife with the two little girls. I can't remember their names. Lord James, I believe his name was. Father, we thank you for bringing them back again. They come every couple of months. Lord, we pray that the message of the gospel would sink into their hearts and they would know the truth and trust the Savior. Father, for Danny and the three girls, Lord, we thank you for them being here. Lord, what an answer to prayer. What an encouragement, Lord, to keep praying, seeing that you hear prayer. Father, I was sitting down the front row this morning crying out to you that you would fill this building full of people. And at 10 after 10, I turn around and the building was full of people. Lord, thank you for answered prayer. Father, we pray for all those that came this morning that, that there would be, that they would have been refreshed in their faith if they know you and challenged in their faith if they're not walking with you. And Father, hearing the gospel if they've never known you and never walked with you. Father, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for this great day that we've enjoyed together. Lord, for the week ahead, we pray that you would keep us with our hearts and our minds focused firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ, walking with him day by day. And Lord, we ask you all these things and we give thanks in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.